whoever you are, wherever you are, and, and whether you're here in person, joining us online at, uh, at, in, in our Fredericksburg farmhouse location, we love you guys, or uh, all throughout the state of Texas, there's people, families, and groups gathered together, and, and also in other places throughout the world, we're so grateful uh, that y'all would join us. And if you're here in person in our new uh, Bethany campus here in River Oaks, it's really cool to see everybody here every Sunday. I just love y'all. I love you. I love being uh, in community with you. I love what God's doing in our midst. It's a beautiful thing to, to behold and to be a part of, and um, I don't take it lightly, and I hope you don't either. It's, it's, it's pretty awesome what, uh, what the Lord is doing in our, in our midst. So really glad to share this journey with all of you. And before I get into today's message, just a quick heads up, okay? Heads up. And this one's for all the lovers in the room. Any lovers in the room? Y'all are like, what does that mean, Pastor? All right? This is for all the lovers in the room. Don't forget, this Wednesday is February 14th. All right? February 14th, the day we always set aside um, every year, this Wednesday, to uh, commemorate the love we have in our hearts for our one and only. And uh, every year on that night, what do we do? We turn down the lights, we play some sweet songs, and uh, we remember why we're in this relationship that we're in and why this love matters. So that's right. Um, This Wednesday, February 14th is Ash Wednesday. That's right. Some of you nailed it. All right. Some of you are like, I'm on to you, Pastor Eric, your shenanigans. All right. It is also uh, Valentine's Day, I'm told, but it is Ash Wednesday more importantly. So we will gather here 7 o'clock for our Ash Wednesday service to get the Lenten uh, season started off right. And I was thinking it could be good for some folks that don't love Valentine's Day. Like, if you don't have someone this year, it's like, you don't have to be alone this Valentine's night. Uh, we'll all be together. And if you are in a relationship and uh, you're tempted to go on a date instead of Ash Wednesday, I guess we're going to see who you love the most. Um, <laughs> so, it's up to you, okay? <clears throat> I do, actually, I want to talk a lot about this topic of love today, and I want to engage you in this conversation, because I think it's something we can all relate to. I don't know if you're in love right now, but maybe you are. Maybe you're in love. You're smitten with someone right now. Uh, Maybe you're smitten with God. There's people that have just come to faith, and they're like, they're smitten with God. They're, They're just in puppy love with Jesus right now, and we all remember what that's like to be in that phase of of life and love. It's a beautiful thing to fall in love. Can you remember the last time you fell in love, head over heels, madly in love with someone? Maybe that person's here with you right now. And if, you, if, if the person you're with today is not the person that you're thinking of, maybe don't tell that to them. But, you know, you can keep some things to yourself. But you, the point is, we all, we all remember and know what it's like to fall in love. And there's no better feeling than falling in love. And, and science backs us up. I was looking at some studies this week about what, what that, that euphoria of falling in love, what it looks like in our brains. And, and this one um, study that I came across from Harvard Medical School corroborated this. It said that being love-struck also releases high levels of dopamine, the chemical that gets the reward system going. Dopamine activates the reward circuit, helping to make love a pleasurable experience similar to the euphoria associated with the use of cocaine or alcohol. So I've never done cocaine. Anyone? Just kidding. That was a test. All right. But I'll keep waiting for someone to go. Yep. All right. Well, we keep it real here at the store. Okay. I've never been there, but I can appreciate why people get hooked on the stuff if doing that is something like what it feels like to fall in love at the start. You know, when you're smitten and head over heels, of course, that's the best feeling on earth. I remember falling hard and fast 
for the, my wife now and, and the woman you know as Pastor Gio, um, like the same day that we met. It was literally like a love at first sight thing for me, which I know makes a lot of people sick, but whatever, get over it. All right, so we met on August the 17th of 1997. And five days later, I famously wrote in my journal that she's the one I was going to marry and all that, five days in or whatever. And uh, about two weeks after that, I wrote a letter to my own grandmother. Instead of paying attention in math class, I wrote her this letter. And I started it, Virgie Merle Mills Goodwin White. That's what I called her. It was her whole name. And so she loved that. And then you see the date, September the 10th of 1997. And in the letter, I wrote about how hard I was falling for this girl. And I started by saying, I blotted out the other stuff because it was about another girl. But anyway, I said, but don't, <laughs> I said, but don't worry about me. I've already got another one scoped out. And then I said, she is absolutely the sweetest, underline sweetest girl I've ever met. Y'all would love her. She is from Quito, Ecuador. You know how I like those foreign women. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> my grandma and I were close, okay? So anyway, maybe I can bring her home with me sometime. She's teaching me to speak Spanish, and the letter goes on and on. I wanted to share this very intimate detail of my life <laughs> as a way of illustrating how, how, how hard and fast I fell in love with the woman y'all call Pastor Gio. I was so in love, in fact, so smitten was I that I referred to her as, I quote, the sweetest girl I've ever met. Now listen, I think I have over 25 years of marriage now um, earned the right to say what I'm about to say, but I recognize I'm going to be walking on thin ice for the next few minutes. My wife is a lot of things. She is fiery and funny, and she's faithful, and she's loyal. She's a prayer warrior. You want her on your side when it comes to spiritual things. She's got a direct line to heaven, I think. She's a great mom, a diligent, brilliant, intelligent, beautiful woman. But is she the sweetest <laughs> girl I've ever met? You know, I wouldn't change a thing about her. Like, she, I love the edge that she's got. I love the, I love the bite, that her personality, and that's probably part of what, like, draws me to her. But I'm not sure I'd call her personality sweet after knowing her over this many years. But at that point in time, I was smitten. And smittenness, or that sense of falling in love, can, can sometimes cause us to see things that maybe aren't really there or see things that over time might fade from view. And I'm sure if Gio was the one up here preaching, she would have plenty of examples to share about me that she thought I had that over time maybe faded from view. That's what happens. That's what happens when you fall in love, right? That's what happens to the feeling of euphoria over time. It doesn't last. Over time, it fades. And sometimes it ebbs and flows. Sometimes it comes back. But we know that that feeling can't last forever. But we keep chasing it, don't we? Why? Because we're made to. We're made for love. The problem comes when we just chase the feeling of love without the substance of it, but still we, we have trouble parsing out those things. We want the feeling of falling in love, but we, what we really need is love that lasts. That's what we really crave, is the kind of love that lasts. I'm going to talk a little bit more in detail about this today by following the storyline 
of a group of people the Bible calls the Ephesians. They were a, a community of first century Christians who were living in a very unique place and time that is not that different from our own, really. And their journey of falling in love and sort of out of love with God might sound very familiar, not only to you and me and our relationship with God, but also in our relationships with each other. So toward the end of the first century, there was um, this ancient city of Ephesus um, where in modern-day Turkey, a community of people was called the Way. The Way was the original banner and brand of the church. There were no denominations or, you know, cutesy names or anything. It was just they were all called the Way. And they were people, those Christians, just like you and me. And they, they had jobs and bills to pay, and they had families and mouths to feed and all the stresses and pressures of everyday Life, But by some miracle, they had come to know God and Jesus Christ, and they had come together to know each other. And so they didn't just fall in love with God through Christ. They, they fell in love with each other as well. And this is evident about, in the writings about the Ephesians throughout the New Testament. And at first, it seems that their passion for God and each other burned white hot. They were smitten with love for God as they had experienced it in Christ Jesus and through the Holy Spirit. But over time, that happened. It happened to them. Same thing happens to all of us. That feeling fade, faded. It, it waned with time. And, and, and we're going to track that journey today. And what I want you to ask yourself, whether it's pertaining to your relationship with God or with someone maybe you're with today, someone God has given you to love, when the feeling of love fades, how do you stay in love? How can we keep love alive? That's the question. So this is part 20 of 26 in our series. We're back on the series now after John Burke last week, and uh, we're, we're almost uh, in the home stretch here. 20 of 26. The series is called Acts of the Apostles, how a handful of nobodies became a movement for everybody. And this is a journey through the book of Acts. But I'm going to tell you something. Usually at this point in the, in the sermon, I'm reading from Acts. I'm not going to do that for like 20 minutes. At the very end of today's message, we're actually going to get to Acts. Okay? So don't panic. When I read Acts 20 minutes from now, don't think to yourself, he's just getting started. Okay? I just want to save you that anxiety. Okay? We're going to land on Acts today because this sermon is kind of reverse engineered. All right? We're going to, we're going to get there, but there's two other major passages in the New Testament that I want to read that tell the story of the Ephesian Christians that I think uh, it will be helpful um, in piecing their whole sort of journey together. All right? So um, in just a moment, we're going to get to, to Acts. But first, we're going to start in the last book of the New Testament, and that's called Revelation. Uh, Revelation chapter 2, and this is a book of visions. So Jesus spoke these visions to the apostle John, and they were letters, basically, to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. And one of the churches that Jesus spoke to was the church at Ephesus. And just pay attention to what he said about the people of Eph uh, the Christians of Eph Ephesus. Chapter 2, verses 2 through 5. And this was written, this all happened about the year 85 AD. So just keep that in mind. Toward the end of the first century, around 85 AD, this is what Jesus said about the Ephesians. I know your deeds. I know your hard work, your perseverance. I know you can't tolerate wicked people. I know you've tested those who claim to be apostles and are not, and you've found them false. You have persevered 
You've endured hardships for my name. You've not grown weary. This is all good stuff. Jesus is just complimenting them one after another. And then he says, yet I hold this against you. You, Ephesians, you have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how, you, how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. So the Ephesians are getting a lot right. Like a lot of Christians today, like what happens to our feeling of love isn't malintentioned, right? It's, it's not malicious. It just happens. It's human nature, right? We don't want to fall out of love with God or with anybody else we love. We just do. And sometimes we keep going through the motions. Some of us are here this morning doing this very thing. Going through the motions, we think it's the right thing to do. It's the thing Christians do. There's nothing else to do on Sunday morning, so we'll come and just spend some time, you know, before, this is your pregame show for the Super Bowl, right? You're just like going through the motions, and I get it. I'm not, I, I know I sound judgmental, but I'm really not. We've all been there, and a lot of us are there this morning going through the motions. The form of our faith is right, but the heart of it is missing. It hasn't always been that way, has it? There was a time when you fell head over heels, madly in love with God. You went to camp. You young people, you went to some camp last summer. You came back on fire. And then what happened? School happened. Miss What's-Her-Name and algebra happened or whatever. You know, it's like homework happened. Relationships happen. Work happens. Stress happens. Like that's what happens to us all. And I think that's what had happened to the Ephesians. Um, because what we know about Ephesians is the, the, uh, the city of Ephesus is that it was not an easy place to live at all. Certainly not if you weren't on board with the local religion, the regional religion, which was a religion, religion of Artemis. So the people of Ephesus in the first century were known for being very hardworking, but also very religious. The Ephesians, it is said, had the honor of being sort of the hosts and guardians of the temple of the great goddess Artemis. Anybody that studied Greek mythology knows that Artemis was one of the big three, like in the pantheon of Greek gods and goddesses. She was no like ordinary goddess. She was the daughter of Zeus. And so this was a big deal that if Ephesus was like her, her home and, and she was their patron goddess. She was the goddess of hunting and fertility in most interpretations, visual interpretations of Artemis's appearance look pretty normal and kind of nice. She looks like a, a, an attractive young woman who's out for a hunt like uh, with a bow and arrow surrounded by some kind of animals. Usually this is a typical um, personification or uh, portrayal of Artemis. But for some reason, we know that the Artemis of the Ephesians worshipped was not like this. The Artemis the Ephesians worshipped looked more like this, which is a very different image. So the uh, Artemis was obviously made of like black stone, almost like onyx of some kind. Um, she was uh, known as the many-breasted one. Those are, uh, were believed to be breasts or eggs maybe hanging off of her torso. And, uh, and what archaeologists think happened is sometime around 600 BC, an asteroid fell from the heavens to the earth at Ephesus. And the Ephesians uncovered the asteroid and saw that it looked like the shape of a woman, kind of, and, and that because she had those, uh, whatever those appendages are hanging off of her torso, it looked like what a goddess of fertility might look like. And so they took it as a sign from heaven that this was the likeness of Artemis falling from heaven. 
And so at that instant, they took it as a sign. They took it seriously. They built a temple at that very spot where the asteroid fell. They polished up that rock and sort of shaped her into what they thought Artemis might look like. And they built a massive temple uh, in honor of Artemis just outside of, uh, of Ephesus. And that temple looked something like this. Truly impressive. A truly impressive structure. Built obviously in honor of a goddess who the people of Ephesus held in high esteem. 127 columns, historians estimate, held this massive temple up. It was twice the size of the Parthenon. Just a massive structure, breathtaking, especially at the time. One Greek poet famously wrote about this temple. I have set eyes on the walls of lofty Babylon, on which is a road for chariots, and the statue of Zeus by the Alpheus, and the hanging gardens, and the colossus of the sun, and the huge labor of the high pyramids, and the vast tomb of Mausolus. But when I saw the house of Artemis that mounted to the clouds, those other marvels lost their brilliancy. And I said, lo, apart from Olympus, the sun never looked on aught so grand. Obviously written by a poet, beautifully written about a beautiful structure in honor of this all-important goddess, Artemis. Now the church, the Christian community in Ephesus took root and um, began to gather and grow in the shadow of that very structure. And in the shadow of the Artemis cult, which was by all accounts in all consuming, you could not be a part of any other cult or religion without being a total outcast in Ephesus in the first century. And, and so that's reality for these Ephesians. It might give us some clue about why over time they fell out of love or they forsook the love they once had for God. The Apostle Paul about 25 years before Jesus gave that vision to John, the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to that very group of Christians. Around the year 60 AD, Paul wrote the letter called Ephesians. And in it, he was encouraging them, which is to suggest that maybe the Ephesians hadn't yet fallen out of love or lost or, or forsaken the love they once had in the beginning. Ten years in, it looks like they were still going strong. Let's look at why I'm saying that. Ephesians 1, verses 15 and 16, Paul, Paul says to the Ephesians, Ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people. He's like, you people are a loving people, a faithful people. I haven't stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. This is from chapter 3 of the same letter, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. This is one of my favorite parts of the whole New Testament. Are you already? And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. The love of Christ, how wide and long and high and deep. I pray that you could grasp that with, together with all the people of God. So in this letter, Paul's telling the Ephesians to keep going. Cling to the love that you have and, and, and cherish it together. Every time that you gather together, um, cling to that love and reflect on that love. And, and it seems like Paul knows sort of what they're up against in Ephesus because he has to say this to them multiple times. Stay in love with God. Stay in love with God. Why? Because they're in Ephesus. And Paul knew what that place was like. 
There's something about Ephesus that I think made staying in love with God even harder. I think Paul knew that, like many of us know, life in the big city doesn't always make Christianity that easy. I think that's why our cities are full of dying churches. Suburbs and rural areas, tend, churches tend to do a little better. I think one of the reasons is city life can just be a real challenge for different reasons. I think Paul also knew that anybody can fall in love, but it's hard to stay in love, no matter where you live. Anybody can be in love whenever life is easy. Like when you're on vacation, it's hard not to love your family. Well, depending on what vacation you're on, but think of the most relaxing kinds of vacations. When everybody's relaxed and chill and there's no deadlines and no pressure, it's like it's easy to feel the love again. But when you come home, you, you're back in the city. You're back at work. You're back at school. You're back in the grind. It's amazing how quickly those feelings fade again. I think Paul knew all that, and I think especially given the pervasiveness of the cult of Artemis. I think he knew these Christians were in for a rough go in Ephesus. I think he knew the deck was going to be stacked against them because, primarily, because of stress. I think we undervalue and underestimate the impact of stress on our loving relationships. I came across dozens of studies this week, literally, that that suggested that stress and hardship are the true sort of underlying causes of relationships that break down or break up or even divorce. We often suggest and say that it's, you know, because of adultery that people divorce or because people change, they grew apart, irreconcilable differences, or, you know, they don't take care of my needs, all the stuff that we point fingers at. But really, underneath the surface, I would suggest more often than not, we fall out of love because we don't manage stress very well. Just the day-to-day stresses, pounding against the shores of our love like waves do against the rocks. And over time, your love can easily erode if you're not careful and watchful about the effects of stress on your relationships. One professor said basically the same thing in professor speak. He wrote, stress doesn't bring out the best in you. All those heavy thoughts and feelings you experience can manifest in the way we speak and act to those around us. When you're under a state of stress, you'll project those negative emotions onto your partner by criticizing their every move or picking an argument with them. Amen? Anybody? Is this anyone's experience? Man, what a, what a powerful thing stress can be in our lives. It has the opposite effect that falling in love does on our brains. The euphoria of falling in love it leads us to turn toward the ones we love. Stress will lead us to withdraw from the ones we love. Undealt with stress, right? Unmanaged, un- unchecked stress will lead us to withdraw and to turn our backs to the ones that we love the most, even to blame the ones we love for the situation that we are in. How does this apply to Ephesus? Well, I think what happened in Ephesus between the time Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians and the time Jesus gave John his revelation in, uh, in the book of Revelation, that I think they got worn down 
by the pressures of living in a city like Ephesus. By the first century AD, we know that Artemis was everything and everywhere in that city. Look at what one historian wrote about her. The influence of the Artemis cult pervaded every facet of life in that city. Artemis was considered the guardian of, of the city. Her temple served as the primary banking institution of the city. Her image graced the coinage in the city. The festivals and games were held in her honor in that city. If you wanted to go to the Super Bowl of Ephesus, you had to go pay homage to Artemis to do it. If you wanted to fit in socially, Artemis had to be a part of it. If you wanted to have a bank account, Artemis demanded her due. And of course, the trouble for Christians was obvious. You can't have both God and Artemis, just like you can't have God and any other idol at the same time. You got to let your idols go. Whether your idol is what Jesus called mammon or money or stuff, possessions, things, success, significance, attractiveness, attention, uh, all, the, all the idols that we bend the knee to, affirmation, acceptance of others, you know, um, sex, lust, you name it. You can't have that and Jesus at the same time. And so these Ephesians had to choose. And in today's story from Acts 19, we see it all breaking down very clearly in real time. Just soon after the church began to explode in Ephesus, Ephesus exploded right back at the church. And it was a foreshadowing of what life would be like for faithful Christians in that city and in other cities like it. So... Um, let's look at Acts chapter 19 together. These events that we're going to read about were sort of the OG events of Ephesus Christianity. And they took place around the year 51 AD. Acts chapter 19 verses 23 and 24 tell this story about the Christians in Ephesus. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. So this guy is like, I think, like the head of the guild of silversmiths or something. He's like looking out, like Better Business Bureau or like the Chamber of Commerce guys or something, looking out for the local businessmen. He called them all together along with the workers in related trades and said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business, speaking of Artemis worship. And you see in here how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. This to me sounds like he just caught himself, like worrying mostly about his bottom line. And he's like, oh yeah, the goddess too. Like, that's what it sounds like to me. Oh yeah, it's really bad that we, you know, theologically it's wrong. It's like the first concern was the finances. When, when they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. And all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd. <laughs> of course, Paul wanted to preach. That's what he wanted to do. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but his disciples wouldn't let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into that theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people didn't even know why they were there. This is 
textbook mob mentality. Um, they're just like, they're showing up for the protest. They don't even know what they're protesting. They even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Over and over again, I imagine. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. That Alexander guy was one of the non-Christian Jewish guys living in, in Ephesus. And they put him out as a spokesman for the non-Christian Jews to say, hey, we're not with those Christians. Don't punish us for what those Christians are doing. We're with you guys. We're cool with Artemis. It's kind of a cowardly way of going about it, right? That's sort of the tack they were trying to take. Now, that the whole city, it says, was in an uproar. And... And everyone descended onto this theater in Ephesus. And that's interesting from a historical vantage point. That theater was no ordinary theater. That theater is still there. The ruins of it are still, some of the best preserved ruins in the world, from the ancient world, are still there. Um, this is the aerial view of those ruins. It's a really impressive ancient theater that sat 25,000 people. Um, the, the Toyota Center seats 19,000. And this ancient theater sat 25,000 people or more. And even more impressive is this view. It's a POV shot, I think, from the cheap seats of that theater looking out. You see why they built it there. I mean, look at that view in the distance. Absolutely phenomenal. And that's, um, that's where the whole city of Ephesus descended in an uproarious pushback against the, the rise of Christianity. I want you to Imagine being one of those new Christians that was being dragged into that theater for, this, for the purpose of being punished or made an example of or humiliated or worse by that mob. You know, except for Paul, I imagine they were all terrified. Paul was like, 25,000 people, let me preach. You know, it's like, okay, that's classic Paul. But everybody else probably was, was mortified. And, and I think what this story offers is just some real insight into what it must have been like for the first Christians in Ephesus to stay in love with God. Initially, they were madly in love with him. They were taken and smitten with him. But over time, the stresses and pressures of life in a place like Ephesus, a place full of idols, took its toll on the love they once had at first. So the question is, what do you do then? What do you do when the love you felt at first for God or for someone close to you, what do you do to reclaim that love what do you do when your feelings and affections aren't what they once were? Well, I think the three passages that we just read from, from the New Testament, each give a clue. And I'll just share these three passages with the last five minutes, uh, these three um, clues with the last five minutes that I, that I have before you today. These are three easy, I think memorable, biblical steps for how to stay in love. Not just how to fall in love, but how to stay there. And they are applicable to your relationship with God and to those who God has given you to love. Step one, I believe, is repent. Repent of your sin. Jesus said in Revelation 2, repent and do the things you did at first, right? That was his antidote to the Ephesians forsaking the love they once had for God. It's an interesting thing, but really it makes sense. Repentance is the act of getting out of that headspace that has you blaming everyone else for the circumstances that you're in especially those closest to you, because that's the people we love to blame the most. 
Repentance is the act of acknowledging that all the problems you've ever had in your life have only one common denominator among them, and it's you. Repentance is acknowledging that you might be the biggest problem in your marriage, that you probably are the biggest issue in your household. And if, if only you could, by the grace of God, overcome your own sins and shortcomings, then you and your loved ones would be better served. To me, repentance even means acknowledging and recognizing that, you know, that girl I fell in love with in 1997 probably really is in her heart of hearts closer to who I saw in 1997 than how I just described her to you earlier at the beginning of the sermon where I was like, sweet, I'm not sure about sweet. Look, if she's put up with the likes of me for over 25 years, maybe she really is the sweetest girl I've ever known. That's what the spirit of repentance will do. It changes uh, the game. It changes your perspective. Step two found in our reading from Ephesians, and it is to reflect on the love of God. Paul wrote in Ephesians 3, remember you were rooted, you were established as a church in God's love. Don't forget that. And every time you come together, I love how he uses that word together with all God's people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of God in Christ. That's why we gather. That's what we do. That's why we sing the songs that we sing. That's why we Pray the prayers that we pray. We do this to remember the love of God. Because when we do that, remember the love we felt at first, when we were smitten with him, and when we said to him, no matter what, I'll always love you. And then life happened, and and we stopped feeling the same way. When we were smitten, we said things like, God, you were always good. And then over time, stress and the lies of the enemy and the duress of this life can convince us that, well, he's good sometimes. Sometimes you're good. We appreciate it when you're good. You're good to other people. I don't know why you're not good to me, but whatever. That's that's the lies of the enemy talking and using your own stress and circumstances against you. When you reflect on the love of God, you remember that no matter what, he is good. And his love never changes. Third, I think to stay in love involves recognizing idolatry for what it is. Idolatry is probably the number one problem we all face, although one of the tricks idolatry will play on us is convincing us that it's not our problem. And I don't really have idols. Look, anything you love even close to as much as God is probably bordering on the idolatrous. Idols always lead people to the same place. They have great power as long as we let them. People who bow the knee to idols will will fight for those idols to the death as the Ephesians were willing to that time in the, the Acts reading from today. People will take to the streets to defend their idols of choice, even if most of them don't understand what they're doing or why they're there. And whether your idol is Artemis or whether it's money or sex or significance or beauty, it's always temporary and it's always false. And every idol, everyone ever worshipped, faces the same fate eventually. As high and mighty as the temple of Artemis was that we looked at earlier, I want to show you what is left of that great temple today. One measly column. And even that column is pieced and parceled together from fragments that were found among 
the ruins. Even that column isn't original to the temple that once stood there. Every idol, every one ever worshipped will come to ruin if it hasn't already, including your idols and mine. It's only the love of God that lasts forever. Turns out that is the love that you've been looking for and longing for and living for. The first love you probably ever heard about, Jesus loves me. This I know when you were pre-K or VBS growing up. The first love you ever really knew outside the love of your own parents, perhaps the first love, the love of God, is the love you've really been longing for and the love we really want. So in all of your searching throughout all of your life, trying to cling to one person or one thing or one idol after another and being let down and heartbroken, it is the love of God that lasts. And if you're here today holding on by a thread, maybe even in a marriage that's holding on by a thread, trying to find some practical way to stay in love and stay in touch with this spouse who seems so far from you, I'm telling you, it's not your own love that you both need, but the love of God holding you together. It's the only thing that never changes, the only thing on which we all can depend, and it can be yours today. Really, it just takes a little bit of openness, a little bit of honesty, a little bit of vulnerability, a little willingness to let go of your life as it has been, to let the love and light of God in today. He stands ready, and I pray that you receive him. You can do that, if you haven't already, by following the prayer I'm about to pray, and maybe praying it yourself in your heart of hearts. So whether you're here in the room or online with us, um, just join me in this prayer. And if it's been a while since you connected to God, or maybe you never have, let this be that moment. Father, we believe in our heart of hearts that we were made for more than just the hustle more than just the stress, more than just making money and making a name for ourselves. We know that there's more because we've been looking and longing for it all of our lives. We're looking for something real, a love that lasts. And right now, Lord, as we sit undistracted by the world, as we sit and reflect on your love, we acknowledge you and your love are what we've been waiting for. And so we set everything else aside, our pride, Lord, our, our shame, we set everything aside, our idols, and just open our hearts to you right now. Holy Spirit, would you enter into the hearts of those who receive you and are, invite you in this very moment, and may today be the beginning of something brand new, something that lasts, love that endures, your love alive in us. We thank you, Lord, for making us for love, to love and to be loved by you. There's nothing better. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.